Good morning, church. Have you enjoyed our worship team today? Our choir and our instrumentalists, and it's good to have Dave back with us. He's become a dad since we lost saw him. Saw him. Dad again. He and his wife just had a baby over Christmas. I haven't slept in two weeks. And he hasn't slept in two weeks, he said. So, well, we're very, very thankful. I want to encourage you, if you haven't already done so, to turn to Nehemiah chapter 4. And Nehemiah is earlier in the New Testament than later. And if you have to use your table of contents, there's no shame in that. It's not a book that you may turn to very often. Nehemiah is um, going to be a guide to us as we study this morning how to fight for your family. How to fight for your family. So Nehemiah 4, we'll begin reading there in just a moment. I don't speak today as an expert with a perfect family. I'm going to speak the truth, but I don't, I don't pretend to, um, to have a perfect home. And I want to encourage you in this way, that there is no perfect family, perfect home. Uh, the perfect father created a perfect man and a perfect woman, and they both sinned and left and rebelled against the perfect father. And so if you're here this morning and you're wrestling with uh, guilt or a sense of uh, failure, and there may be reason for that, and the Holy Spirit may show you that, but I want you to understand at the beginning there are no perfect families. However, when we come to Nehemiah, he shares with us, teaches us, some very specific ways you and I can fight for our family. Now, what makes Nehemiah so special is that he was um, a very influential man in an empire, an ancient empire, and was burdened for his homeland. Uh, the Jews had been taken from their home country and taken into captivity, and now they were beginning to return back to Israel. And some had settled in Jerusalem. They were rebuilding the temple, but they had not rebuilt the walls. And Nehemiah felt a call from God to go and rebuild the broken walls in a broken city. But if you've ever read Nehemiah, you begin to realize it's not just about the walls. That he was also building a very broken people. And what's remarkable about Nehemiah is that after the time of Nehemiah, the people of Israel were not perfect, but they never again fell into idolatry. And so God used Nehemiah in a powerful way to fight for his people. Well, as soon as they begin to rebuild the wall, they immediately experienced opposition. And that's what we read in chapter 4, verse 1. But it so happened when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, that he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. And then go to verse 13. Therefore, I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings, and I set the people according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the leaders, and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Nehemiah and the people he was responsible for were being threatened. And in that way, he is a model for you and me in how to fight for our family. I'm sharing this today for two reasons. Some time ago, we 
began to recognize that in our church, as in probably most churches, we felt our marriages and our families were under attack. As it seemed, almost weekly, we would learn of a new uh, crisis in a family, in a home. Uh, our staff, as God has accumulated our staff here, uh, with Mike Shipp and Dustin Clegg, our pastor's students, and, and Todd Mayno, who works with children and families, uh, together have made a, a lot of efforts in trying to learn what are resources that are available to help families that want to fight and build and strengthen their home. And so today is part of the fruit of their labor, the fruit of their work. Uh, if you were in Bible study this morning, uh, you should have covered a Bible study related to fighting for your family or what the Bible says about your family. And we have made available through our Bible study groups today, and if you didn't get one, maybe you're just coming to worship, uh, we also have these in the, in the lobby, and it's a way of assessing what's happening in your family. Much the way that we were assessing what was happening in the church, we want to encourage you to assess specifically what's happening in your family. And if you use this guide, it says, my win at home plan to build a strong family, it will help you do that assessment. The second reason that we, we plan this today is, is we felt very, very much that our families and our, our dads and our moms needed to be encouraged in their fight. They needed hope for what they were experiencing. And so rather than just preach a message, which this message is an important part of what we're doing, or a Bible study, which is an important part of what we're doing, but we have made available uh, in what we're calling a win at home center in our lobby back here and in the lobby outside of our preschool area where our kids are dropped off in the nursery, uh, 30 different guides, resource guides that will help you take initial steps. This will not solve the problem of how to build a strong marriage, discipline with young children, family finances, influencing grandchildren, which is a lost art, singles, should you pursue marriage. Whatever stage of life you're at, we've got 30 different life crises or situations that you'll want to explore. And if God leads you to assess what's happening in your family, then I would encourage you to go by and look at, pick out one of these resource guides. Now, they are not going to solve all your problems, but they'll give you a perspective on what's happening and some initial steps to take and some resources that you can lay hold of that you may find very, very helpful. Of course, your staff is always here, and we're able to make referrals. If you would prefer to see a licensed clinical counselor or someone like that for those kinds of needs, but so many of the kinds of needs we have are kinds of things that if we uh, will work some basic uh, strategies and steps, we can begin to resolve some of these things in our homes with God's help. So I encourage you to do that. If you're not able to get by there, uh, we do have some magnets back there, but the value of the magnet is it's got a uh, web address on there, uh, www.winathome.org, winathome.org. And that's all letters, win at home. Uh, the value of going to that website is all 30 plus of these resource guides are there available for you to download. And you don't have to pick up a paper copy if you don't want to. You can go there and do your own research and explore what's available. Perhaps there's someone you know, a friend, who needs help, who needs some kind of guidance, and maybe you want to see if there's something there that could help them. And you could download it uh, and then send it to them, email it, hand it to them, whatever the case may be. The bottom line is this. We want you, if you're here today and you're fighting for your family, we want you to leave here with a sense of hope. 
we want you to have a sense that there is a possibility that your fight can be won and that your family can be won for Christ. And so we want to encourage you with that. And to help us do that today, I asked one of our families in our church to share their story of a crisis they went through. And I, I want you to hear a story of hope. So if you'll give your attention to the screen behind me, uh, let's watch the story. Words that come to mind when I think about the difficult time in our marriage are words like um, despair and anger, heartache, disaster, fear, distrust. It was over. It's just over. There were so many lies that had been told. There were so many moments of fear so many hateful words that were spoken, complacency, laziness, selfish choices that were made. It was a mess. We were just a mess. When I think about the time in our marriage that was very, very difficult, it was a period of time that there was no hope. I even had a very close friend tell me that that there was no hope for my family and, and to just give up. And it was at that point that I knew I could either give up or fight. I had a choice. I had made the decision to leave, to start a new life with uh, my kids, to do something different. I mean, I was unhappy and that was the logical thing to do, right? But God, he, he just wouldn't let me go. He kept stirring my heart, and he kept nudging me. He kept giving me this specific memory. It was of my parents after my little brother died. They had nothing to give to each other emotionally, at least not in their own strength. But one night, I remember walking in and my mother was sitting behind my father on our stairs and she just had her hand on his back. No words were being spoken. God wouldn't let me forget that moment. He wouldn't let me go. He kept telling me, I fixed it. I brought joy back. There was healing. I fixed it. I can fix this. I can fix this. And one afternoon, I was sitting out on my porch, and I just yelled out into the street, okay, then fix it. I didn't know what else to do. And at that moment, I chose to fight. I chose to stay. I think back to the day that I knew I had a choice to make. And I choose to fight that day. At first, I didn't know how to fight. All I knew how to do was just turn to God, start spending time in his word and spending as much time as I could with him. It was during that time that God showed me many things, but there's two that comes to my mind. The first was the day I was sitting in church to listen to a sermon and pastor was preaching about continual sin and I remember there sitting there listening and 
God taught me and showed me that day that I had continual sin in my life. From when the time that I thought I had an encounter with Christ, I did not. But that day, I prayed to God to come into my life and change me. And it was at that point when I realized that how could I be a husband that I should be when I wasn't following the Lord that I need to be? The second thing that God showed me was that it's okay to get help. I'd started seeing a counselor, and through God, through that counselor, used a book to show me that I did not truly love Nikki. And it was through not truly loving her, I realized that how could she have trust, and how could she want to be with a man who did not truly love her? I had to choose to make our marriage and our family a priority. God kept telling me to lean on him and I will fix this. And he did. I knew that we had to stop and weed out Satan's distractions because he tries so hard through all the worldly things. If you ask me today, can God fix anything? And I would say yes. If you lean on him and fight, fight for your family. And he will be there with you. Let God do his work. And you know what? He has. He took our mess and he turned it into a miracle. I'll tell you today it's not easy to fight for your family. But I'll also tell you it's worth it. Whatever the cost, your family is worth it. Amen. Do you praise the Lord for that testimony? And you need to experience hope. I mean, Carl and Nikki are singing this service. They have experienced God's capacity, his power, to change their marriage, transform it. And I don't know what you're experiencing that you're calling a, a crisis in your home. It may not be a matter of, of saving your marriage. It may be a prodigal child. It may be kids that are running from the Lord. It may be, you may be the kid. You may be a son, a daughter, and your parents don't know Christ. Or your, your grandparents don't know Christ. And and you're the only light that they have, the only testimony that they have, and, and you're experiencing difficulties or challenges of some sort in your family. And so there's a blank here, and you're going to have to fill it in with your challenge, with your battle. But I want to give you four strategies that I believe you can apply to most any battle that you encounter when you're fighting for your family. Here's the first strategy. Four strategies for fighting for your family. Number one, make the decision to step into the battle for your people. Make the decision to step into the battle for your people. It says in verse 14, Nehemiah said, and I looked and arose and said. Carl Garner made the decision to fight for his family. Nikki shared how it was a choice that she had to make. And it's a choice that you have to make. You can't be indecisive. You can't be passive. You've got to determine at some point that if the tide's going to turn and what's happening in my home, I'm going to step into the fray. I'm going to engage. I'm going to get involved. Jesus said in John 15, 13, uh, greater love has no one than this than to lay down his life for his friends. And so it's one of the ways in which you love your family is you fight for them. Now, Nehemiah had heard the threats of this man, Sanballat, and Tobias the, uh, the Ammonite. We're going to look more about their threats in just a moment. And so in response to their threats, he positioned men at vulnerable places along the wall. 
places that were not completed yet, with spears and swords and bows and arrows. And so he provided for their defense, but they were still afraid. His provision was not enough. Now, the temptation that you and I have is that when we look at our family situation, we, we begin to get defensive. We begin to think about all the things that I've done. I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. Instead of just stepping back and saying, Lord, what do I need to do to step into the battle? Don't stop if nothing changes. Don't give up. Don't quit. Well, Nehemiah didn't. The Bible says that he looked, that he arose, and he said. And in the, those brief verbs, those, those phrases, there's a four-part uh, way of making a decisive act that I want you to see. Um, there's a four phases of a decisive action that he models for us. The first one is really not there in the verse. It's intercession. I'm going to say that one first. Intercession. These aren't in your notes. This is, this is free. comes with the package. Okay, intercession. Nehemiah in chapter 1 prays for his people. Nehemiah in the opening verses of chapter 2 prays for his people. In chapter 4, verse 4, a verse that we haven't read, in response to the threats of the enemy, Nehemiah stops and breathes a prayer for his people. And so if you're going to engage in the battle, engage in the war, if we're following Nehemiah as a model, one of the things very, very clearly that he does is he intercedes for his people. Are you praying for your family? Are you praying for them by name? Are you praying for them regularly? Are you seeking God for how should I pray for them? How do you want me to pray for them? And he may have a very specific thing he wants you to ask him for in relationship to that individual. You and I simply do not have the time to pray for everybody in Wynn, Arkansas by name. But you have specific individuals by name that you can pray for. And they're the people God has put in your life. And they are your people. And they are your family. So intercession is the first phase of getting active or engaging in the battle. But the second thing we also see is investigation. He says, and I looked. I looked. He could have put these military men on the wall and then said, I've done everything I can do. What more can I do? What do you want from me? You want me to, to bleed, you know, steel or something? I mean, what do you want me to do? What else can I do? He doesn't stop there. He puts these men in place, and then he looks at the people, and he recognizes there was still a problem. And so he investigates. You may need to ask questions of the people that you're fighting for, talking to them. A husband may ask his wife, what are you afraid of? What are the fears that you have in your life? Husband, you're walking around, no fears. She may have great fears. Um, you may talk to a, a, a teenage child, who, a son or daughter who's getting ready to graduate. And they're going to college, they're going to work, they're trying to figure out what they're going to do with their life. You think they don't have some anxiety? And maybe you need to ask them questions. And, and I don't know, again, what your crisis is, but, but know what's happening. Investigate. And he says, and I looked. The next thing it says is, I looked and arose. Not only should there be an intercession investigation, there needs to be conviction. When he stood up, he had made the decision to enter into the battle. There was now in him an absolute conviction that he needed to act and do something. And the last thing it says, and I looked and arose and said, 
There's a confrontation. He's now entering into the battle. He's speaking to the issue. He's addressing the problem, in this case, of their fear of what the enemy is going to do. The key thing I want you to hear from this particular strategy is that if you do nothing, you're definitely going to lose. You have to decide to act. If you're here this morning and your family's in trouble, you've got to decide, I'm going to fight. I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to give up. I'm going to look for the way forward that God has for me. There's a second strategy that we learn from Nehemiah. The first is to make a decision. The second is this. Direct their attention to the greatness of the Lord and away from the lies of the enemy. You say, that seems kind of odd. What is that about? Well, look at what he says. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome. If your family is in trouble, if your marriage is in trouble, if you've got people that you're concerned and they've been resistant to the gospel, whatever that need is, whatever the crisis is, someone typically is listening to voices and to words and to beliefs that have nothing to do with the Word of God. And individuals who are listening to the enemy, and your family has a very real enemy. The Bible says that the enemies of your soul are the world, the flesh, and the devil. We've talked about this many times here. The world is an entire system of doing life without God. I mean, you watch movies and the whole God's never mentioned as a viable force or entity in the film. You read books and that's there. The entire world value system is designed to get you to do life apart from God. And then there's the flesh, the, 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 the desires that you have that are sinful that all of us fight, all of us deal with. And then there's the devil. And he's the enemy. And he actually puts out things into your mind, plants statements that stick with you, that, that go round and round in your head, and they affect you. That's what was happening here in verse 2, chapter 4, verse 2. Um, Sanballat, in verse 1, heard that they were rebuilding the wall. He was furious, very indignant, and mocked the Jews. Now listen to what he says in verse 2. And he spoke before his brethren in the army of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Now what did he just attack? who they were, their identity. He attacked their worth. Will they fortify themselves? He's attacking their goal, their purpose in building the wall. Will they offer sacrifices? He's attacking their worship. Will they complete it in a day? He's attacking their progress. Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? He's attacking their past, resurrecting their past. The whole reason the walls are in rubble is because you people didn't worship God. And then Tobiah the Ammonite speaks, uh, verse 3, was beside him and he said, whatever they build, even if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. He's attacking their accomplishments. It's just, at every turn, the enemy is putting things into their mind to engender despair and hopelessness. And maybe you're at that point in your fight. 
And you need to know that, that when you focus on what the enemy is telling you, that there's no hope, there's no way through this, that when you're focusing on that, you have been deceived and you're believing a lie. How do you deal with the lies that are destroying your family? Well, James tells us in the New Testament. In James chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, he says, Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Now, that sounds very similar to what Nehemiah says in, um, in verse 14. He says, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome. What's he doing? Don't listen to these guys. Remember God. Remember he is awesome. He is the Lord. What did Carl do? He said, I had to turn to God. What did Nikki do? I had to turn to God. What do you have to do when you're in a battle for your family? You got to turn to him. Lift him up. Lift his name up. If you're dealing with a, a prodigal, a son or daughter who's rejected faith, running from God, one of the most valuable things you can do, of course, is as best you can maintain a relationship with them, love them, show them love, take an interest in them, who they are, what's happening in their life. But listen, you also have the opportunity in a relationship like that to talk about what God is doing in your life and to lift him up and to share what God's sh showing you in his word and to express your satisfaction in Christ. Let me share with you what God is showing me, what God's doing for me, what God is doing in me. And, and to always lift up the Lord. What are you doing when you're talking to that member of your family that you're that's precious to you and that you love. What are you doing? You're saying, don't listen to the enemy. You're not saying it that way, but you're saying, don't pay attention to this. I want you to know that there's someone great. The Lord is awesome. And that's what Nehemiah does. He rips their attention away from Samballot and Tobias. Remember who he is. Remember what he is saying. Two strategies here so far. Make the decision to step into the battle Direct their attention, attention to the greatness of the Lord. There's a third strategy I want to give you. Uh, it's establish credibility with your people through your daily walk with God. Establish credibility with your people through your daily walk with God. When Nehemiah in, it says it in verse 14, don't be afraid, remember the Lord, he's awesome, and fight. That's what he says next. He says, and fight. Now, Nehemiah could say that because they knew this man and what he had given up in order to return to Jerusalem. They knew that he had, he had given up great position and privilege and power in order to come back to the city and love these people and help them rebuild the walls and help them become again the people of God that they needed to be. And they knew that. But if they didn't know that, if he didn't have any credibility, they wouldn't listen to him. In fact, if you don't have credibility, why would anyone listen to you? And it's important to establish credibility. It's important for you and I to be the real deal when we're talking to others about the Lord. I think one of the most humbling and scary and awesome verses in the New Testament is Matthew chapter 5 or 16, and you can just jot it down in the margin. But he says, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works but glorify your Father who is in heaven. The, the, the awesome assignment there is that what I do and what I say 
should, should be my light shining out and that people see that and they say, well, that's Don. He's just said something. He's doing something. But at the end of the process, they don't go, wow, what a great Don. But at the end of the process, they say, what a great God. And that's the challenge of Matthew 5, 16. That's how you gain credibility with people. So how do you gain credibility with people? Let me give you, let me give you three ways to do it. The first word, you can just jot down the margin, is the word salvation. Salvation. You cannot give what you don't possess. You can't challenge people to receive Christ. If you truly haven't received Christ yourself, you can't challenge people to follow him if you're not following him. When you receive Jesus Christ, you're putting your trust in the Son of God who died for your sins on the cross. And when Jesus died for your sins on the cross, he was taking your place. He was taking your punishment. And he died and was raised from the dead as proof that your sins could be punished and forgiven and someone could survive it. And the Bible says if you put your trust in Christ, your sins will be forgiven. But he will also put his Holy Spirit inside of you. You will be what the Bible calls being born again. And he will begin to change you from the inside out. Let your light so shine before men means that you're a person in whom the Holy Spirit dwells and there's a light that can be shown. But if you aren't saved, there's no light. There's no presence of God at work in you for people to see. And so one of the things that you may need to do, like Carl did, you may need to reach to the place where you realize, I don't know him. I need to trust him. I need to be saved. And that's where you begin your journey to credibility. Is you become the real deal. You become a person who's growing, who's been saved. You know, when, um, by the way, my wife and I have arguments. Surprised? Anybody surprised? My wife has a will of steel, and mine is equally like that. And it's like two immovable things colliding when we disagree. And so, if I did not know Jesus, I promise you, with my personal history, where there's been divorce and difficulty in marriages going back multiple generations. My great-grandparents divorced in 1912. That my wife and I would not be married today. I know that. Now let me tell you how a typical argument played out years ago. It's a little better now. I, uh, she and I have an argument. I leave the room. I go talk to the Lord about it. That's good so far. But it starts out this way. God, can you do anything with her? God, she is so messed up. Jesus, help her. And I just kind of go like that for a while. And then when I begin to listen to the Lord and not just talk at the Lord, you know the difference, don't you? That my heart begins to settle and he begins to bring the thermostat down on my heart. I begin to listen. And then here's, and always what happens, always what happens. Don, you shouldn't have said that. Don, you shouldn't have done that. And without regard to what she did or didn't do or what she said or didn't say, the Holy Spirit in me convicts me, convinces me that I was wrong. And I can go to her because of his presence in my life. And I can sincerely and genuinely say, I was wrong. Will you please forgive me? And you see, when salvation has occurred in your heart, 
The Holy Spirit lives there, and he will not let you get away with the things that you get away with. In fact, if you can just get away with all the junk, say whatever you want, do whatever you want, and you're doing it all the time, and it doesn't bother you, and the Holy Spirit never grips your heart and convinces you that you're wrong, he is not home. Don't deceive yourself. Reach the conclusion, I need God. I need salvation. And put your trust in Christ. That's the first step to gain credibility. There's a second way to gain credibility, and that's growth. Growth. When you've trusted Christ, the next thing that happens is he begins to change you from the inside out. He does that through the scriptures. That as you read the word, as you hear it preached, as you sit in Bible study groups and you hear it taught, that the word has the power with the Holy Spirit present in your life to change you. And so if you're an angry person, you become typically over time less and less angry. God grows you. He teaches you to walk in cooperation with his Holy Spirit. And so there's growth that takes place. And that establishes credibility, especially when you live with someone for a long time. They see where you were, and now they see who you are. They see how you used to be, and now they see what you do and say now. There should be growth. The last way that you and I establish credibility is through discipleship. Discipleship. Discipleship simply means to follow Christ. If I'm a disciple of someone, I listen to what they say, I follow them, I do what they say. And, and when I'm processing my major life decisions, God, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to respond? Uh, your family sees that, your spouse sees that, your parents see that, your kids see that. And, and they begin to understand that you are credible when you talk about walking with God. And so that's the third strategy. And I tell you, a big part of that is whether or not the Holy Spirit is present in your life. And that only happens when you come and you trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That's strategy number three, establish credibility. Last one, number four, fight the battle of influence by connecting with the heart of your people. There are forces in the world that want to influence your family, influence your children, influence your marriage. Just as these leaders were trying to influence the people and instill fear in them. And so what does he say? He says, don't be afraid of them. He says, God is awesome. He says, fight. And then this is what he says in the last part of verse 14. And fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Who are you fighting for? Them. Them. You're fighting for your family. You're fighting for those individuals. And by shifting the focus away from my fear for my own personal safety and, and survival or reputation or whatever it is I'm trying to protect, he says, forget that. Fight for your people. Fight for your family. You know, you can have all of the right answers. You can be theologically precise. You can know the Bible backwards and forwards. But if you have not won the heart of the members of your family, no one is listening. And so you want to win the heart, the battlefield of influence. So that when you speak, when you act, people recognize, your family recognizes that there's something special in the relationship between the two of you. It's a battle for influence. You know, one of the most remarkable qualifications in Scripture for a pastor and truly for any church leader is the ability to win the hearts of children in the home when they're little when they're at home. Uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4, uh, one of the qualifications for leadership is one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. 
You say, that's no problem. My kids do what I say. Some of y'all say, well, I'd like to talk to them. They don't do what I say. And, um, and we're talking about, of course, children. We're not talking about adults. We're talking about kids. And, um, and you're saying, well, how can I get my children to be obedient like that scripture talks about? And, um, of course, I had a friend one time. His, his standard line was, it's easy to get kids to obey. A scared child is a good child. You know, the, co- the corollary to that is a, a tired child is a good child. And, um, but that's not what the verse is saying either. It's not talking about using hostility or intimidation. It's not talking about condemning a child or humiliating a child. It's not talking about, um, you know, all these things that we might do as parents to manipulate them. It says to have them in submission. And then those last words are so critical, with all reverence. To have a child in submission with all reverence means that I secure compliance from that child on the strength of my relationship to the child. That they, in effect, revere their father or their mother to the extent that if my daddy asks me to do something, that's all I need to know. If my mom asks me to do something, that's all I need to know. Not because they're afraid of them, but because they love them and the father has won the heart or the mother has won the heart of that child. Now, again, there's no perfect kids. You know that, don't you? But the standard leadership model that's used in the home then becomes the same leadership model used in the church that a pastor, deacon, Sunday school class leader, whatever, secures leadership ability, not on the strength of their position, well, I'm the pastor, you should do what I say, but on the strength of the relationship that he has with the members of that flock. So that's why the home is the training ground for leadership in the church. Totally different than what happens anywhere else in society or anywhere else in the world. So the question becomes, how do you, how do you win the heart. Well, specifically, we're going to talk about that tonight in tonight's evening service. And I'm going to talk to you how to fight a battle for the heart. How to do that. We're going to look at a specific instances of scripture where somebody won the heart of a whole generation of people, and we're going to look and learn from that individual. And we'll look at that tonight. But here's the main thing. If you're not influencing your child, if you're not winning their heart, who is? If you're not winning and influencing the heart of your spouse, someone else is. Someone else is. And, and if you're not winning and influencing the heart of your parents, or your grandparents, who may or may not know Christ, someone is. And so there's a battle there to be fought. Now, all that being said, let me say this. I said at the beginning, I need to say it again before we close. There are no perfect families. There are no perfect parents. I've seen the most godly parents who love Jesus and are tenderhearted and would hurt no one. I've seen them raise kids who, when they were old enough, walked away from the Lord and, and just completely renounced everything that their parents had, had told them. I've seen other kids come from home where their parents uh, were abusive, where they didn't know Christ, where they uh, had all kinds of vices and things in the home that you wouldn't want kids to be exposed to. And uh, I've seen kids come out of that environment and love Jesus with all their heart. So I guess what I'm saying to you is, is that you want to You want to know that there are no perfect families, no perfect homes, but at the same time, there is a way to fight. And that's what we're emphasizing. And that's what we're offering you today are some strategies and some tools and some resources to help you in the fight for your family. Here's the bottom line. You can't make everyone follow the Lord in your family. You can't make everyone follow the Lord. But you can fight the battles, and there are four of them of indecision, deception, 
credibility, and influence. You can fight those four battles. Indecision, deception, credibility, and influence. Are you ready to fight? Are you ready to fight? I don't know where you are in your home, but it's no accident that you're here today and you're hearing this particular message. In just a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing, but this is part of our worship time, and if God has spoken to your heart about making the first move, taking the initiative, stepping into the fight, I would encourage you, when we stand and sing, you may just need to bow your head there in the pew and, uh, and ask the Lord for guidance as you step into the battle. You may need someone to pray for you or pray with you. And so when we all stand and sing, uh, it's not uncommon for people to come and pray at the steps. They did it last hour. And, and just pray to the Lord and say, God, I need your help. I need your intervention. Maybe you like Carl Nicky and you're at a breaking point and you absolutely are ready to surrender everything to him and let God step in and take charge of what's happening in your home. Maybe someone close to you is in trouble. Family that you know is in trouble. Maybe you need to intercede and pray for them right now as Nehemiah prayed for his people. And uh, there'll be pastors here at the front and they'll be happy to pray with you as well. But hear me, if you're in this fight and you don't know Christ, this morning the first thing you need to do is receive Christ. You know, when I, when I do wedding preparation and when I encourage couples that are planning on getting married, the thing I look for and the thing I want to see the most is I want to see a man that loves Jesus with all his heart and I want to see a woman that loves Jesus with all her heart. Because when Christ is the center of that marriage, that marriage is going to make it. That marriage is going to make it. Because it's the strength of that commitment to Christ that's going to bring that man back to his wife when he's been wrong or bring that wife back to her husband when she's been wrong. And so I don't know what kind of battle you're facing today, but if you don't know Jesus, step one is to come, surrender your life to Christ, trust him to forgive you for your sins and to come in and to take control and to give you a new heart and a new life. Our pastors will be standing at the end of each aisle. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for being here and speaking it to our hearts. And Holy Spirit, you're welcome in this place. And we pray that for that man or woman a young person who is hurting today and they're in the midst of a crisis at home, that they would be encouraged by your Holy Spirit, that you would fill them with hope and a clear path to walk on. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.